This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. This is episode 245 of the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This is another in the series of anatomical sensory organs of fishes. We're going to talk about fish vision in this episode. This podcast episode is brought to you by Corkers. The Corkers brand was born 60 years ago on the treacherous banks of the Rogue River in Oregon. Their original river cleat was handmade out of rubber and spikes. The functional design quickly grew as a favorite among fishermen, and the rest is history. Through the years, Corkers has continued to innovate with purpose, bringing advancements to fishing footwear. Interchangeable soles, boa lacing, and internal drainage are just a few wading boot firsts brought to you by the passionate folks at Corkers. Check out their latest product line, including the Omnitrax Interchangeable Soles at Corkers.com. The variety of interchangeable soles include the felt sole in black, white, and studded, the Klingon sole in sticky rubber and studded options, the studded rubber sole, the Svelte 2 sole, and the Vibram Grip sole that comes in standard and studded options. Now, Steve Charles, you're not going to like this podcast because I am going to be doing a bit of reading from my notes. I started this podcast April... 22nd, while we were on spring break. Today is October 4th. Happy birthday to my brother, Andrew. This podcast is going to be a bit of reading, as I mentioned. None of this information came from fishing-related articles or blogs. If you Google Fish Vision, every major fly fishing blog and website out there is going to have a write-up. If you want to go in-depth, you can go look at conventional fishing. You can look at goldfish research and further information on deep ocean organisms. So to further the series of understanding how fish are built for you to better decipher how to use that knowledge to your advantage and catch them, we're going to talk about everything about fish vision. I am not going to focus on cave fishes or benthic organisms, things that you're most likely to encounter on your angling pursuits or what I shall talk about today. So what do fish see? It certainly isn't what we see based on their environment. 
But how has evolution favored those that live in an aquatic environment? What colors do they see? How far can they see? What adaptations do they have to live in fresh or salt water, deep or shallow water, living at the surface or living on the bottom? As anglers, we certainly offer different species different color patterns, mostly with regards of where the fish is on any given day, based on weather, the chop of the water, ambient light, tides, wind. Lots of different factors can make you decide what fly you're going to throw on any given day. They say purple works for coho, blue eggs in winter for steelhead, orange for peacock bass in Florida, tan-colored flies for bonefish when fishing over sand or hard bottom, chartreuse is always a go-to for clousers, Carolina blue poppers on the Shenandoah and the Potomac. Remember, what a trout eats is mostly three-quarters of an inch long and olive brown in color. There's the pink squirrel fly for Wisconsin, and then you got the new orange hot spots on trout flies. So let's go over a background on fish vision. I've covered how fish hear, and now I'm going to discuss how fish see. We've talked about senses of smell. We've talked about some reproduction in fishes. This one's going to be all on fish vision. So eyes have evolved to be in different locations based on where and what the fish eats. Fish that feed on the surface have different eye socket locations than bottom feeding fish. Fish that feed in the dark won't have the same size eyes as the ones that live in bright light. Vision is an important sensory system for most species of fish. The eyes on the fish are like the eyes of a terrestrial vertebrate, like birds and mammals. However, fish have a more spherical lens, which I will talk about in a minute. And some of these things will be redundant as I go through my notes. Birds and mammals, including humans, normally adjust focus by changing the shape of their lens. But fish normally adjust focus by moving the lens closer to or further from the retina. Sight in fish is not as important as other sensory systems. They rely more on taste and hearing for feeding. Vision, although less important than other sensory tools, is important for finding food mates, spawning sites, and more. And most large predatory fish are dichromatic, meaning they rely on only two photoreceptor classes to perceive color. Color vision may have evolved in fish over 400 million years ago. And the eye of the fish is what allowed vertebral organisms from the ocean to conquer land. Water and light. Fish and other aquatic animals live in a different light environment from that of terrestrial species. Water is approximately 780 times more dense than air, which means it's not a good conduit for light to travel through. The further light penetrates through water, the weaker it becomes. Invisible light is comprised of a range of wavelengths, with violet being the shortest and red being the longest. Shallow water species are adapted to have a maximum sensitivity of light for around 500 nanometers. Deeper water species are adapted to 475 to 480 nanometers. Rainbow trout have three sensitivity peaks at 455, 530, and 625 nanometers. Sharks and rays do not have color vision. Water absorbs light. With increasing depth, the amount of light available decreases quickly. Water absorbs the red end of the spectrum more easily than the blue end. And at a depth of only one meter, 25% of the red light entering the water has already been absorbed. When daylight hits water, the light bends and is selectively scattered and absorbed. Ultraviolet light, which are shorter wavelengths than violet, can penetrate deeper than the visual spectra. Most, will say 78% of the visible spectrum is absorbed within 10 meters or 33 feet in clear water. The long wavelengths we see as red, yellow, and orange are lost first. I've mentioned this in several other podcasts. Red turns to gray at a certain depth. The shorter wavelengths of the visible spectrum, the colors we see as violet, blue, and green, can reach further, with blue penetrating Lake Superior 
to a maximum depth of 150 meters or 500 feet. How far light penetrates on any given day depends on the following. The angle of the sun, time of daytime, and time of year. It's easier to sight fish in the summer when there's sun directly overhead than it is in February when the sun is just over the horizon. The choppiness of the water surface. What is in the water column? Algae, sediment, salt. Another example of Lake Superior. On a bright, calm day, only a minuscule number of photons can reach the bottom. So about 300 meters or 100 feet, it's all dark. But some of those other lights can still get down. We're going to talk about countershading now and counterillumination. Countershading, which I mention every time I do a Clouser fly tying class, is achieved by coloring the fish with darker pigments at the top and lighter pigments on the bottom in such a way that the coloring matches the background. When seen from the top, the darker dorsal area of the animal blends into the darkness of the water below. And when seen from below, the lighter ventral area blends into the sunlight from the surface. Counterillumination is achieved via bioluminescence by the production of light from ventral photophores or light producing organs aimed at matching the light intensity from the underside of the fish with the light intensity from the background. Now I'm going to discuss the physical structure of the fish's eye. I'm going to talk about the sclera, the cornea, the pupil and iris, the lens, liquid, the retina, and the rods and cones within. Dissecting eyeballs in class was never one of my favorite things. Eyeballs gross me out. I don't do eye injuries. There was that movie where the guy's eyeball got ripped out in the end zone and was just sitting there on the, the turf. Uh, I, I, I don't like cutting open eyeballs. When, when Andrew Zimmer eats eyeballs on TV, it grosses me out. I, I don't do eyeballs, but I can talk about them as long as I just don't have one here. And our friend Steve used to train people to do LASIK eye surgery. So we're up at his house in Jersey. And I'm like, Steve, man, I, I need a drink. He goes, there's some Gatorade in the fridge. I open up the fridge. And there's a gigantic, about four to five pound, shrink-wrapped square of pig eyeballs or sheep eyeballs just sitting there next to his Chinese takeout and the Gatorade and condiments. And I was like, no, thank you. I'm going to go to Wawa down the street. So I'm going to talk about eyes. I'm just not going to play with them or look at them. So a single type of image forming vertebrate eye has evolved. And they're all rather similarly structured. Vertebrate eyes first evolved in water. Image forming eyes must both capture light and resolve it into images to inform their owners about the visual world. Resolution increases with eye size. Thus, larger eyes will always be selected in the course of evolution. Fish eyes are broadly like those of other vertebrates, notably tetrapods, four-footed organisms, amphibians, reptiles, birds, and mammals, all of which evolved from a fish ancestor. And we all know that fish came out of the oceans because one of the fish lost its ball on the beach and they had to crawl out and get it. And that's according to Gary Larson. So light enters the eye at the cornea, passes through the pupil to reach the lens. Most fish species seem to have a fixed pupil size, but elasmo branches, the sharks and rays, the cartilaginous fishes, have a muscular iris which allows pupil diameter to be adjusted. Pupil shape varies and may be circular or slit-like depending on the species. Fish also do not have lacrimal glands or tear ducts. They don't need to get rid of salt like we do. They're in a saltwater environment. It's not like a Galapagos marine iguana that just squirts salt out of its nose. These fish can metabolize salt intake via their urine and excretion. If they got too much salt, they're just going to pee it out. But they don't need to cry or clean their eyes out because they're always in the aqueous environment. Fish also have no eyelids. Now, some species have extensions of the skin that cover part of the eye. And in some fish... Other parts of the body may be sensitive to light. In cat sharks, some other juvenile fish, and some sharks, the pineal gland is in the center of the forehead. It's light sensitive. Larval sea lampreys have light sensitive skin cells that go all the way down to their tail. I'm not going to go into detail about the pineal gland, 
but it's a fascinating piece of evolution and it deals with circadian rhythms. You have one. So let's talk about the sclera. Sclera is the first outer layer. It's the outer case. Sclera is commonly known as the white of the eye. It's the tough, opaque tissues that serve as the eye's protective outer coat. It's only transparent in front of the lens when it's called the cornea. The sclera is reinforced with plates of cartilage or bone, together forming a circular structure called the sclerotic ring. Primitive fish have a ring consisting of four plates. The number is lower in many living ray fin fishes and much higher in lobe fin fishes. The cornea is the second layer. It's where light enters the eye. It has a consistent thickness, unlike ours, which is faintly lens-shaped. Hence, it does not refract or change the path of light rays passing through it. Your pupil and your iris are the next in line. The iris is the light-adjusting portion. In many fish, the iris cannot be contracted so that the pupil cannot close if the light intensity increases. Now, I always talk about fishing on bright, sunny days, and we say fish are being in the shade because they don't have eyelids, they don't got sunglasses, they're not wearing hats, they don't have an umbrella to shade them. But fish can still see in bright light if their eyes can adjust the pupil and the iris to let sunlight in and out. So to avoid overexposure, the rods and cones, or photoreceptors, change their shape. You also have something called melanosomes, which are pigment organelles. Those are arranged to make a shadow. The opposite process happens when light is scarce. Let's talk about the omega iris. Why does it even have that name, you're wondering? Well, so the top part of the iris descends to form a loop which can expand and contract. And that is called the iris operculum. Operculum means cap in Latin. It's the cover of the fish's gill cover. It's, it's on top of spores. It's a little, it's like uh, when you've got a, a beer tankard and you use your thumb and you pop the lid up like a trash can lid when you step on the bottom. That's an operculum. When light levels are high, the pupil reduces in diameter and the loop expands to cover the center of the pupil, giving rise to a crescent-shaped light-transmitting portion. This feature gets its name from its similarity to an upside-down Greek letter, omega. The origins of the structure are unknown, but it has been suggested that breaking up the outline of highly visible eyes aid in camouflage what are often highly modeled animals. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. How about that? The lens. The lens is a protective film over the eye so that fish can see more clearly underwater. It's like having a goggle. And remember, goggles originally just polished up turtle shells. You can read that in Jeannie Clark's book. Fish, when pointed at an image straight on, have a good picture in the center. Vision will become increasingly fuzzy and refracted at the edge of their vision. So to focus, fish must point directly at something like my bluegill in the aquarium. While their vision exists almost in 360 degrees, their vision is clearest in the middle of the picture. We talk about the cone of visibility of trout and why you can sneak up on a lot of fish from behind because they do have peripheral vision, but it's not good enough to see you. They also really cannot see behind you depending on the location of their eyes. So the lens is fixed in its shape. The shape cannot be adjusted to facilitate focusing on near or more distant objects. Lenses are normally spherical, but can be slightly elliptical in some species. Compared to terrestrial vertebrates, fish lenses are generally denser and more spherical. The spherical shape of the lens makes it protrude through the iris. Fish vision is increased due to the whole eye protruding from the fish's head. 
and the normal serpentine nature of the fish's movement. Teleos, bony fish lenses, are nearly an incompressible sphere that protrudes through the pupil. It allows the fish periscopic vision so that each eye has a field of view larger than 180 degrees. The small part of the eye in front of the lens is filled with a fluid called the aqueous humor. And I never liked poking sheep eyeballs in lab because this stuff would squirt out. And the space behind the lens, which makes up most of the body of the eye, is filled with a fluid called vitreous humor. And it's humor, H-U-M-O-U-R, not like slapstick humor. The iris is normally immovable in teleos and very slowly movable in the Lassmobronx, the sharks and rays. It takes about one hour to change from its most open to its most closed. So you're going to have to think about light adjusting and how long fish have from a cloudy day when all of a sudden it becomes bright. Or maybe fish in a tunnel that come out in a bright light. So the iris, normally immovable in teleos and very slowly movable in the Lassmobronx. Lassmobronx mentioned above are the subclass chondrichthys, cartilaginous fish, including sharks, rays, skates, sawfish. Those all have slightly flattened lenses and have a high refractive power because the cornea is in direct contact with the water. In addition, to focus the image, they do not change the shape of their lens, but move them forward or backward. Bifocal vision is an adaptation due to the placement of eyes on the side of the fish's head. While the fish's lens is spherical, the eye itself is elliptical, which allows light entering from some directions to have a short journey to the retina versus light from other directions. Thus, its eyes are close focused to light from in front, but distance focused to light from the side or from behind. In teleosts, the lens is pulled back towards the retina by muscles called retractors. You've got retractors in your legs. Whereas in sharks and rays, it's pulled away from the retina by muscles called protractors. You got protractor muscles as well. Now, in the aquatic environment, there's not a major difference in the refractive index of the cornea and the surrounding water compared to something like us on lands. So the lands must do most of the refraction. And due to a refractive index gradient within the lens, exactly as one would expect from the optical theory, you can Google that, the spherical lenses of fish are able to form sharp images free from spherical aberration. And once light passes through the lens, it is transmitted through a transparent liquid medium till it reaches the retina containing the photoreceptors. Like other vertebrates, the photoreceptors are on the inside layer, so light must pass through layers of other neurons before it reaches them. Now, I mentioned fish don't have eyelids. They completely lack an outer eyelid. Some sharks do have what's called a nictitating membrane, a thin, transparent film that covers the eye for protection. You see this when sharks come up and bump shark cages or when they bump into somebody wearing uh, chainmail underwater or when they bump up to the outboard on a boat. That little lens cover is going to come over. It's the nictitating membrane. Other eyelid replacements are in some species. Some species of bonefish have a fatty layer that they can draw over their eye that, while not technically as an eyelid, it shuts out some light and only allows it through a small hole over the pupil. And I'm going to read to you from Dick Brown later about bonefish eyes. Some fish have light-activated pigments in their eyes that shade out bright lights by becoming darker. It's pretty cool. Now, I'm going to discuss the retina, the third layer. This is where everything really happens. Third layer is made up of rods, cones, a tapetum, and a protractor and retractor lentis. Fish retinas generally have both rod cells and cone cells. Most species have color vision. Some fish, some, can see ultraviolet. Some species are sensitive to polarized light. And the retina, because so much is going on in there, uses a lot of oxygen compared to other tissues. And it's supplied with plentiful oxygenated blood to ensure optimal performance. The optic nerve is what carries the electrical impulse from the retina to the brain, where it is received in the optic lobe. In bony fishes, their eyes grow throughout their life. Therefore, 
the retina is also growing. In addition, the retina can regenerate in case of getting hurt. And this is why I did not let one of my day campers, we'll call him the Kleber, did not let him play with fish eyeballs when we caught them at Lake Ann as kids. So you can scratch them. They may be able to regenerate, but still, this kid wanted to play with all their eyeballs when we caught them. And I just said, no, dude, you can't do that. It's just not something you do to fish. Rods and cones are next. Rods detect only the presence of or absence of light, and the cones can detect color. So if you want a mnemonic, cones start with a C, color starts with a C. Cones, colors. First, we're going to do rod cells, even though it's not in alphabetical order. Rod cells inside the retina provide high visual sensitivity at the cost of acuity being used in low light conditions. Rods are much more common than cones, and usually there are four or five rods for every nerve cell, whereas cones normally have only one per nerve. The ratio of rods to cones is highly variable between the species. Everything hunts differently, lives in different aquatic environments, different turbidity, different water speeds. But as a rule, the deeper the fish lives, it has fewer cones. Why? Well, the whole point of this, there's no light getting down there. And the ratio of rods to cones depends on the ecology of the fish species concerned. I mentioned those mainly living during the day in clear waters. They're going to have more cones than fish living in low-light environments. Gelasmobronchs, again, now it's the third or fourth time I mentioned them, and deep fishes only have rods. Thus, they cannot see color. Sharks cannot differentiate the color of your fly. Someone on Facebook just mentioned that orange traffic cone color is great for sharks. Well, they're not going to see it as orange, but there's a multitude of grayscales that they may be able to interpret with their brains. But the color of your fly doesn't matter to a shark. They just can't see it. Photoreceptors are the cells in the retina that are going to respond to light. And their distinguishing feature is the presence of large amounts of tightly packed membranes that contain the photopigment rhodopsin, or a related molecule. And if I told you this before on the podcast, when I was a teacher, if you either put prevent desiccation, increase surface area, you would get about 95% of the questions right on my biology quizzes and tests. So I use the word tightly packed membrane. That is to increase the absorptive surface area of all of these pigment absorbing cells. The tightly packed pigments increase that absorptive surface area for photon light. And the photopigments that absorb light all have a similar structure, which consists of a protein mentioned before called opsin and a small, did I mention that before? I don't know. The photopigments that absorb light all have a similar structure, which consists of a protein called an opsin and a small attached molecule known as a chromophore, its color cell. Let's talk about cones now in depth because as an angler, you know, I look at my desk here, there's silvers, blues, pinks, chartreuse, purples, there's black, there's barred things, there's a multitude of colors that we buy in a fly shop hoping that what we're seeing is what they're seeing. And let's talk about how they see color. And that's all done in the cone cells, which are color detectors. Cone cells contain light-sensitive chemicals that catch the light and convert it to an electrical impulse. You have rhodopsin in freshwater. You have porphyropsins in marine fish and cryopsins in fish that live below 500 meters. And those chemicals are particularly sensitive to the blue end of light spectrum. Cone cells are going to provide higher spatial and temporal resolution than rods and allow for the possibility of color vision by comparing absorbances across different types of cones, which are more sensitive to different wavelengths. Fish can have up to four types of cones. One type of cone detects ultraviolet light. Ultraviolet cones are used to detect plankton, although not all have them. Some species only have them when they are larval and others only during certain stages of adulthood. An example, the rainbow trout, Oncorhynchus mycus, have ultraviolet cones only when living in fresh water. So don't be tying your rainbow patterns if you're going to be fishing in the ocean for rainbows. Maybe ocean-going ones before they swim up. Those would be steelhead. 
But once they're in the river, they'll be able to detect them. But by how much? So additionally, in trout, a bit of fluorescent orange, yellow, or pink absorbs UV rays and projects that back into the visible spectrum of the fish. It's not visible to them on the surface or just under the water, but it gets more visible the deeper you go. Double cones would be a pair of cone cells joined to each other. Surface area. Each member of the double cone may have a different peak absorbance. Each type of individual cone in a double cone can provide separate information or the signal from the individual members of the double cones, so they're not necessarily summed together. That kind of wraps up the cones. We'll go into more information on the retina. So color vision is more useful in environments with a broader range of wavelengths available. Near the surface in clear waters, rather than in deeper water, will only a narrow band of wavelengths persist. So if you live near the surface, you're going to have to have a more variety for the colors up there. Whereas you're in the deep, you might only get a little bit of color down there. So why evolve to have extra things that you don't require? Fish may have two or three areas specialized for high acuity. For prey capture and for sensitivity, dim light coming from below. And photoreceptor distribution across the retina is not uniform. The distribution of photoreceptors may also change over time during development of the individual. Example, the case when a species typically moves between different light environments in its life cycle, shallow to deep waters, fresh to salt. Think of salmon that have to change their vision when migrating from deep ocean waters into shallow rivers. Or when food spectrum changes accompanying the growth of a fish as seen with an Antarctic ice fish. And in deeper living organisms, the yellow filter serves to counter camouflage coloration of animals swimming above. The yellow filter reduces the amount of shortwave light, which is most scattered within the eye. Here's something really cool. We're going to call it the, the tapitum lucidum. Some species have a tapitum, a reflective layer, which bounces light that passes through the retina back through it again. This enhances sensitivity in low-light conditions, such as nocturnal and deep-sea species. It gives photons a second chance to be captured by photoreceptors. See something like this on terrestrial organisms when you have eye shine. However, having this comes at a cost of reduced resolution. Some species can effectively turn their tapetum off in bright conditions with a dark pigment layer covering it as needed. So you're going to sacrifice how high quality you see something, but you can see it regardless. So would you rather be able to see it and not be able to focus as well? Or would you rather not be able to see it at all? So fish sometimes can manage that by themselves. In teleos, the tapetum lucidum is located behind the rods and cones and is either composed of guanine crystals, as in the bream, Abramus brahma, and the anchovy, anchoa michele, or a melanoid lipid, which is found in garfish, lipomus tiidae, and the catfish, siluridae. Elasmobronx, the tapetum lucidum is found in the choroid layer, which is the vascular layer of the eye, containing connective tissues, and it lies between the retina and the sclera of the eye and is composed of guanine crystals. Here are some more notes on image stabilization on the vestibulo-ocular reflex. Again, it's an eye reflex movement that stabilizes images on the retina. It produces eye movements in the direction opposite to the head movements, preserving the image on the center of the visual field. When the head moves to the right, the eyes move to the left and vice versa. I should have had that earlier on, but that's where it is. Before I end structures of the eye, I want to talk about the protractor and the retractor lentis. The protractor lentis is only found in cartilaginous fishes. The muscle changes the distance of the lens from the retina and is relaxed for far vision. If the cartilaginous fishes want to accommodate for near vision, they move the lens farther from the retina. Makes sense. Now, the retractor lentis is only found in teleos, bony fishes. This muscle changes the distance of the lens from the retina, and it's relaxed for near vision. So bony fish accommodate for distance vision by moving the lens closer to the retina. Let's now talk about light underwater. 
red light is absorbed in the first 10 meters. So nothing red is below that. And when you see all these beautiful underwater photography shots, brightly colored fish, it's probably because they had a strobe light or a big flash on their camera lens. To the naked eye, that stuff is dark. But you light it up with a strobe and it's brighter. And you can go check out my brother's photographs to see those. Orange and yellow are first absorbed in 30 meters, where green is absorbed in the first 50 meters and blue at 200. And there are two zones of light in water. The aphotic, remember A in front of a word means without, aphotic zone lacks light. This is from 1,000 meters to below. The photic zone is where light does pass, and that is also the photosynthetic area. Nothing that photosynthesizes is going to be below where light can reach them which is why algae migrate during the day. They'll be deep in the water at night, and then they'll come to the surface during the day to photosynthesize. You can further subdivide that photic zone, as I'd mentioned uh, with photosynthesis, to the eutrophic and oligotrophic. The eutrophic zone, it's the most superficial layer, and that is where the photosynthesis, of course, occurs. And organisms can carry out photosynthesis only because light is present. Although it can vary, it's usually considered to be 200 meters from the surface. The closer you get to the surface, in clear water, the more photosynthesis you can make. Remember, the majority of all oxygen on Earth is produced by algae in the water, and not by the, the trees outside my house. The oligotrophic zone is the area that receives enough sunlight to permit the organisms to see, but not carry out photosynthesis. That's going to be like 200 meters to 1,000 meters deep, places I am never going don't plan on doing that. Not claustrophobic, but I do not want to be in a cold submersible. Photopigments were mentioned earlier. These are made up of a protein molecule called opsin, which is usually in the cell membrane. And so-called the chromophore, the active region, and that is made from vitamin A. When light hits the chromophore, it changes the shape and is released from the opsin. Opsin molecules activated in this way in turn set off nerve signals, or you can say that a series of chemical reactions end with an electrical signal traveling to the brain. The chromophore, the color cell, is pigment-containing a light-reflecting cell or a group of cells. They alter the wavelength of light that the chromophores absorb best, and so they change the colors that the visual pigments are most sensitive to. Marine fishes have vitamin A1, while freshwater have vitamin A2. Salmon and lampreys, which go between the realm of fresh and salt, light and dark water, can switch between A1 and A2 when they swim upstream, enhancing their ability to see infrared in waters that they're going into and out of. So now you've got rainbows out in the ocean. They're using one type of pigment in a chromophore. And then they're going to go into freshwater, and now they can see, well, rainbows can see UV and more because it's just different vitamins in their eyes. So let's, let's talk in depth about UV light. UV light. Many species of fish can see the ultraviolet end of the spectrum beyond violet. There are four visual pigments that absorb various wavelengths of light. Each pigment is constructed from a chromophore and the transmembrane protein, which I mentioned above is opsin. There are several types of opsins. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Go over them again. Mutations in opsin have allowed for visual diversity, including variations in wavelength absorption. A mutation to opsin on the SWS1 pigment, which you don't need to know, allows some vertebrates to absorb UV light so they can see objects that reflect ultraviolet light. A wide range of fish species has developed and maintained this visual trait throughout evolution, throughout evolution suggesting its advantages. UV vision may be related to foraging, communication, and mate selection. The two-striped damselfish, Daskalus rectilatus, 
has ultraviolet reflecting coloration, which appears to use as an alarm signal to other fish of their species. Predatory species cannot see this if their vision is not sensitive to ultraviolet, so they can communicate with other fish not knowing. That's why my wife always wants me to know how to speak Russian so we can talk about other people in front of them. Some fish use ultraviolet as a high-fidelity secret communication channel to hide from predators. Other species use ultraviolet to make social or sexual signals. So how is that used in mate selection? Well, ultraviolet vision is sometimes used during only part of the life cycle of a fish. Juvenile brown trout live in shallow water where they use ultraviolet vision to enhance their ability to detect zooplankton. As brown trout get older, they move to deeper water where there is little ultraviolet light. So when they're young, they're eating zooplankton, they're insectivorous, but when they get to a certain size, there's not enough calories in those, so they're going to go to deeper water where they can hide better and eat larger food, mainly bait fish. UV reflective color patterns also enhance male attractiveness in guppies and three-spine sticklebacks. Behavioral experiments show that African cichlids utilize visual cues when they choose a mate. Their breeding sites are typically in shallow waters with high clarity and UV light penetration, and male African cichlids are largely a blue color that is reflective in UV light. The first time that purple tilapia was caught out of the Potomac, it's like, that's a blue-looking fish. It was probably a male. Females can correctly choose a mate of their species when these reflective visual cues are present. This then suggests that UV light detection is crucial for correct mate selection in certain species. Now let's talk about polarized light, eye shine, and schooling. Polarized light reflected from the scales of fish may enable other fish to better detect it against a diffuse background. Polarized light may provide useful information to schooling fish about their proximity and orientation to a neighboring fish. Again, that's the anchovy. Eye shine allows fish to see well in low light conditions as well as in turbid, stained or rough, breaking waters, giving them an advantage over their prey. This enhanced vision allows fish to populate deeper regions in the ocean or a lake. In fresh water, the best example is going to be a walleye. And that's what you see when you see their eye. That's their eye shine. Schooling. Schooling distance sensing systems are important because they allow communication with other fish and provide information about the location of food and predators and about avoiding obstacles or maintaining position of fish schools. My favorite fish school is the one in Finding Nemo where they had to make arrows and stuff to point in directions. Very clever. The schooling marks are visually prominent stripes, which provide reference marks and help adjacent fish judge their relative positions so they don't bump into each other. And remember that schooling fish better metabolize their energy because they are breaking up the water in front of each other, sort of like geese flying in a V or race cars drafting each other. Schooling fish also have a lateral line running the length of their bodies. The lateral line enables the fish to sense change in water pressure and turbulence to adjust its body. Using this information, schooling fish can adjust their distance from adjacent fish if they come too close or stray too far. It's pretty fascinating. Let's talk about some adaptations based on location. Most large predatory fish are dichromatic, meaning they rely on those two photoreceptors to perceive color. It's been proposed that underwater predators perceive optimally with an offset dichromatic system, where one photoreceptor optimally perceives the background illumination spectrum where the other photoreceptor contrasts the background spectrum. An offset dichromatic system creates high contrast between the background lighting and the prey illuminated by overhead sun. In an aquatic environment, long wavelengths, orange, red spectrum, are reflected in background lighting, whereas short wavelengths, blue and green, contrasts that background. These aquatic spectral properties generally aligned with the largemouth bass visual system. Similar visual system properties have been found in other sunfishes as well. How does fish vision affect migrating fish? Not necessarily schooling, but migrating. So some migratory species change the eye's anatomy according to the environment. 
lampreys migrate from rivers to sea. They have a different pigment for each environment. In freshwater, it's porphyrosin red, and in the sea, it's rhodopsin blue. Eels, remember, eels go from freshwater to the center of the ocean, the Sargasm Sea, and then migrate back here. When eels are ready to begin that migration to the sea, the diameter of their eye doubles, the lens size increases, and the number of cones increases significantly. Only 3% of photoreceptors begin before the migration. It's pretty cool that not only is their body adapting to go from fresh to salt and back, but their eyes will also adjust to go into that deep, dark, big body of water. And where specifically do some of these fish migrate? There's three strata in the water, if you will. The first one is epipelagic, epi meaning above and pelagic meaning open ocean. Fishes live in the surface water down about 200 meters. An example is your four-eyed fish. They have eyes raised above the top of their head and divided into two different parts. They can see below and above the water surface at the same time. It's like a David Dublé photograph. Four-eyed fish have only two eyes, but their eyes are specifically adapted for their surface-dwelling lifestyle. The eyes are positioned on the top of the head, and the fish floats at the surface with only the lower half of each eye underwater. The two halves are divided by a band of tissue, and the eye has two pupils connected by part of the iris. The upper half of the eye is adapted for vision in the air. Again, the lower vision in water. The lens of the eye is going to change its thickness from top to bottom to account for the difference in refractive indices of the air versus water. These fish spend most of their time at the surface, and their diet mostly consists of terrestrial insects, which are available at the surface. So they're going to have eye parts that are going to look above the water, which are going to look out for predators and food. And then they're going to look down below them, maybe for aquatic drowned insects, and look for predators from the bottom. But they should be countershaded, so they don't really have to look down below them to protect themselves. The mesopelagic is the middle section of the ocean. Fish live in deeper waters in the twilight zone down to depths of about 1,000 meters. These fish are adapted to an active life under low light conditions. Most of them are visual predators with large eyes. And if you're following the Russian guy on Instagram, he catches some crazy bizarre fish from this section. Post them on Instagram. So most of these are going to be visual hunting predators with large eyes. Larger eyes increase the surface area that you can see and allows the light to go in. Some of the deeper water fish have tubular eyes with big lenses and only rod cells that look around. Because if you don't have enough light to see color, why have the metabolism to support those cells? And this type of vision gives binocular vision and great sensitivity to small light signals. The adaption gives improved terminal vision at the expense of the lateral vision and allows the predator to pick out squid, cuttlefish, and smaller fish that are silhouetted against the gloom above them. For more sensitive vision in low light, some fish have a retroreflector behind the retina. Flashlight fish have this plus photophores, which they use in combination to detect eye shine in other fish. So your eye shine might be an adaption, but also might lead to your downfall, like a deer in the headlights that you're not supposed to shoot from the road. The third stratification is the bathypelagic, or the bottom of the ocean. These are fish that live below 1,000 meters. The only light is from bioluminescence, and most deep-sea fish cannot even see red light. The lack of light means that organisms must rely on senses other than their vision. Their eyes are small and may not function at all. To find prey, they might have bioluminescent danglers that attract other fish toward them, the angler fish. To find a mate, it's going to be based on pheromones in the water. It's crazy down there. The Antarctic toothfish often have large upward-looking eyes adapted to detect prey silhouetted against the gloom above. Telescopic fish have large forward-pointing telescoping eyes with large lenses. And you can go look at hatchet fish and all those other you can go look at all these fish online. Telescope fish have large forward-pointing telescoping eyes with large lenses. Let's talk about some ocular advantages and evolutionary adaptations with specific fish species. We'll start with the most primitive. The hagfish 
only has vestigial eyes. They don't really use them. The ancestors of modern hagfish, thought to be proto-vertebrates, were evidently pushed to very deep, dark waters where they were less vulnerable to sighted predators and where its advantageousness would have a convex eye spot, which gathers more light than a flat or concave one. Fish vision shows evolutionary adaptations to their visual environment. For example, the deep sea fish have eyes suited to the dark environment, which is rather redundant because I mentioned that before. But being that hagfish were first, things adapted from them in the evolutionary chain, which brings us up to lampreys next. Among jawless fishes, being the Agnathans, lampreys, and hagfish, lampreys have the more well-developed eyes, and the eyes are found in the end of stalks projecting from the upper sides of the head, and these then would further have been evolved to make uh, teleos fish. Bonefish. Let's talk about bonefish. I'm going to open up Dick Brown's book, Fly Fishing for Bonefish. Eye structure and vision. Like many fish, the bonefish's eye lenses bulge out from the body's surface. They give the fish a wide field of vision to spot distant prey and predators, even those to the rear. Donald Erdman, a fisheries biologist who has studied hundreds of bonefish, believes that the eye is set into the head at an angle to favor upward vision, both to sense threats from above when the fish swims and to spot prey and predators in the bottom of the water column as it feeds upended in the tailing position. The bonefish also has acute color vision and can discern 24 different colors and a wide spectrum of shades of gray. One unusual aspect of the bonefish eye accounts for its ability to see in cloudy water. A hard, transparent adipose eyelid covers the eye. This very long, streamlined, goggle-like sheath protects the eye and permits vision even in debris-strewn, muddy water. It also reduces turbulence around the eyes and allows bonefish to see clearly even when swimming at maximum speed. For anglers, this total eye structure suggests that bonefish see well under just about all conditions. They see shapes. They see colors. They see in daylight. They see in low light. They see in muddy water and in clear water. They even see well when swimming at top speed. Bright clothing, unnecessary movements, tall profiles can all be major liabilities for anglers. I have found over the years that wearing pale, neutral colors like khaki and light blue lets me get closer to fish. I also find that crouching when getting in close reduces spooking. It's page 22. Let's talk about trout because this podcast is for anglers and a lot of anglers target trout. Trout have both monocular and binocular vision. Each eye is located on the side of the head and trout can look out to one side with a single eye or focus both eyes on a single point above or in front. The optimal focus is at about two inches. Trout have a 30-degree blind spot behind them. Salmon. In rivers, flecks of mud and algae shift the underwater light away from the clear blue of the ocean and towards the red end of the spectrum. How do salmon see in this? Well, they compensate. A simple biochemical switch in their retinas gradually enhances their ability to see infrared light. Salmon effectively transform their eyes into night vision goggles so they can see further into the murky water where they'll fight, mate, spawn, and die. Mudskippers, which I was fascinated by these when I was a kid with my illustrated encyclopedia of zoology, have their eyes placed on prominent turrets. Think of an olive on the end of a toothpick in the martini that I'm not drinking because I don't like martinis. So that allows them good all-around vision. And when they're out in the mud, they can also withdraw their eyes into the turrets to clean and lubricate them because there's going to be dry salt spray that accumulates on them. And they're also in mud. And there's all sorts of nasty stuff along the mangroves that could get in their eyes. Shocks. The tapetum lucidum returns light rays that have escaped from the retina to the retina to improve vision. This consists of tissue that is behind the retina and reflects light back into it, thereby increasing visibility in dark water. Many sharks can contract and dilute their pupils like humans, something no teleos fish can do, as we mentioned above, with the protractor and retractor lentis. Mentioned again, the nictitating membrane covers the eye while hunting and when the shark is being attacked. However, great whites do not have this. They roll their eyes back in their head instead. 
Swordfish, and when a swordfish eye washes up on shore, it freaks a lot of people out. Google it. Swordfish have highly visual heating systems involving muscles in which they can raise the temperature in their eye and brain by up to 15 degrees centigrade. The warming of the retina improves the rate at which the eye can respond to changes in rapid motion made by its prey by as much as 10 times. A part of one of the muscles that moves in its eyes has adapted to produce heat instead. It warms up the blood, which is then moved towards the eye and the brain. And depending on the diving depth of the swordfish, the ambient temperatures and intensity of the light, they can improve their ability to track their prey by up to 10 times, which I already mentioned. That's redundant. This is why I need an editor. And a temperature drop must affect transmission speed in nerves and other molecular and neurochemical processes, slowing the whole nerve response down. And I was the kid growing up that used to correct the teachers in science class when the teacher said there's no warm-blooded fish. Excuse me back here? Like, yes. Well, we got tuna and we got swordfish. I'd like to... Uh, debate this with you, and I, I usually got in trouble for being the obnoxious kid, correcting the teacher. It's also common to find swordfish in the Pacific Ocean at a depth of 300 meters. And at this depth, the ambient temperature could be as cold as 3 centigrade. A swordfish retina kept at 20 degrees centigrade at this depth would be seven times better at resolving moving images. The greatest benefit of having warm eyes would be the one the water is cold but brightly lit. The ribbon sawtail fish, Idiacanthus fasciola, is a braided dragonfish of the family Stomidae, found around the world in depths of over 500 meters. That's all I have about that. For some reason, I wrote it down, but there's no information. Whereas flatfish have eyes, so they have a binocular view of what is above them as they lie on the bottom. Flatfish are either born right-eyed or left-eyed, and depending on that is where the eye will migrate as the fish evolves. Now, largemouth bass, again, we're all anglers here. Some of you might just be listening to this because you're doing a science project and you need to listen. Some people just might be listening to this because you need to fall asleep at night. But I'm going to talk about largemouth now. Largemouth bass have a strong preference for red coloration over black or blue and black. Colors such as chartreuse yellow should be perceived by them as being similar to white. Bass from Illinois and Florida populations possess similar photoreceptor sensitivities despite the differences in their environmental light compositions and locations. If you want to learn about everyone's opinion on bass lures and what bass see and what to use on what day based on water, you can go Google and you'll get every bass angler's YouTube page and every bass angler's blog and whatever else. And it's a lot. Bass anglers will discuss fish vision and colors to the day that the pigs fly home. Triggerfish might be my last example here. Previous research has shown triggerfish have two types of cones in their eyes, which house three types of visual pigments, allowing them to see the world in different colors, but until now, the extent of their color vision was not fully appreciated. Triggerfish see more or less the same color range we do, but their color discriminations are different. So take that, y'all anglers that are casting a trigger fish around the world. And I think that's it. That's my uh, podcast. Believe it or not, that took several months to write. It's very nerdy, but it's in-depth. And I think it is important, having started this podcast in a classroom setting manner where I talked about uh, you know, wading safety and entomology, hydrology, fish vision, fish hearing. Each one of these is sort of a, a chapter in what we would call a, like a textbook of fly fishing. So I hope you enjoyed that one. And if you have any questions, if you want the sources, I've got a few pages, HTML links I can send you. If you want all this, I can send it to you too. And of course, uh, I'm not being graded on this. So there were errors and redundancies. And I definitely did not paraphrase everything because uh, I not looking to publish this so I can copyright things. So I hope you like that. That is fish vision that may or may not help you in any way, but I just did it to be complete in my coverage of all things fish. And with that, I'm going to go pack my bags. I'm going fishing. By the time you hear this, I'm going to be on a road trip going to chase coho. I'm trying to get some coho mojo. 
next episode. Coho Mojo. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. This podcast is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern, presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.